This is Macro Horizons, episode 146, focused on flattening. Presented by BMO Capital Markets. I'm your host, Ian Lingen, here with birthday boy Ben Jeffrey to bring you our thoughts from the trading desk for the upcoming week of November 15th. And as the holiday shopping season quickly approaches and supply chain concerns abound, we're happy to have pre-ordered our Inflation Me Elmo doll. But we overpaid. The views expressed here are those of the participants and not those of BMO Capital Markets, its affiliates, or subsidiaries. Each week, we offer an updated view on the U.S. rates market and a bad joke or two. But more importantly, the show is centered on responding directly to questions submitted by listeners and clients. We also end each show with our musings on the week ahead. Please feel free to reach out on Bloomberg or email me at ian.lyngen at bmo.com with questions for future episodes. We value your input and hope to keep the show as interactive as possible. So that being said, let's get started. In the week just past, the choppy price action in the Treasury market has contributed further to the evolving macro narrative. We brought in a reasonably strong bid at the beginning of the week with 10-year yields as low as 141. Now, this was just six basis points above our target range for 10s at the end of the year, which is that 125 to 135 zone. The fact of the matter is, however, that the market wasn't able to retain that bid and yields quickly backed up. That was aided by the significant tail at the 30-year auction, as well as a 1.1 basis point tail at the 10-year auction. More importantly for the macro narrative, however, was the stronger than expected headline and core CPI print. Inflation is now running at the highest levels that it has both on the headline and the core series since the early 1990s. Now, this is very consistent with one of the biggest trades for 2021, which has been the reflationary story. And when we look at the breakdown of the inflation series itself, what we see is that there is arguably a broadening of the categories of upward pressure on consumer prices. Energy was a big contributor in October, but even within the core series, we see that new and used auto prices continue to support inflation expectations. And we also now have the contribution of higher than expected OER or owner's equivalent rent. All of this intuitively brings into question the Fed's expectations for prices to eventually moderate and also leaves the market focused on the pace of tapering. As it presently stands, expectations are for the first two months of tapering to be at $15 billion a month. But as we move into 2022, there is an increasingly compelling argument that the Fed will need to accelerate the decrease of bond buying, which will create the needed flexibility for the Fed to bring forward the liftoff rate hike into the middle of 2022. As it presently stands, we continue to look toward Q4 of 2022 as a most likely period for the Fed to deliver the first rate hike of the cycle. Expectations from there will be a quarterly cadence with a nod to the fact that if inflation continues to come in above expectations, it follows intuitively that the Fed would then choose to deliver the first hike in the third quarter. This debate is the primary one among market participants at the moment. 
simply whether or not the October inflation print warrants recalibrating Fed expectations for the year ahead. Our take is that the October data certainly puts Q4 2021 on a reflationary trajectory. However, there will be plenty of data between now and the point where the Fed actually needs to make the decision on liftoff. So it's been an unquestionably exciting week. Ian, I'm going to pose a question to you that has been posed to us several times over the course of the last few days. How has the October inflation data changed what we're thinking about the market? Well, one of the primary ways in which it has reinforced some of our core tenants in the treasury market is it fits extremely well with the notion that the big trade in 2022 is going to be the quote unquote surprise flattening of the curve, which is really just a way of changing the paradigm around the underperformance of the belly of the curve. The flattening of the 530s curve, I expect, will continue to be thematic. This week, we saw this benchmark spread reach as low as 63 basis points. It's very conceivable that in the new year, we will see a return to the 2018 range, which was effectively 20 to 40 basis points. Now, this is notable because such a flattening has historically been a late cycle development, not what one would expect when the Fed has yet to follow through with the first rate hike. So as we think about the debate playing out in the market at the moment, there has been and will continue to be a lot of focus on the fact that while five-year yields have breached 125, 10-year yields are still in a range below 160. And as part of this discussion, there's also the critical component of the details within the CPI release. This past week was somewhat different in that the upside surprise was not solely a function of some pandemic-specific increases in prices. Think things like airfares, lodging away from home, subcategories simply related to the lifting of restrictions and re-engaging in some version of a normal economy. Rather, we saw both food and energy somewhat intuitively up sharply, another round of increases in auto prices, and probably most noteworthy, a sharp 0.44% month-over-month increase in OER. Now, this is not necessarily a surprise given what we've seen in the real estate market over the last 12, 18 months, but the fact that it's now flowing through with a meaningful effect on the core CPI series has to raise some questions on the FOMC, just given the sensitivity of the housing market to borrowing costs and ultimately the Fed funds rate. Well, it's interesting that Powell has come out in the past and said that the Fed is not worried about the run-up that we have seen in home price appreciation. Now, that isn't to suggest that there's no chance that the Fed would ultimately feel compelled to respond to inflation, even if it was driven in part by the recent acceleration in home prices as evidenced by OER. What we will be looking for is how the Fed introduces the conversation about OER and housing costs in the inflation complex. There's a very compelling argument that what drove the increase in home prices was 100% the pandemic and the Fed's response. Now, that's slightly less obvious as pointing to travel-related costs and saying this is the natural result of reopenings and the new normal coming back online, it's a bit more nuanced. It's effectively saying that the Fed's policy response, i.e. much lower rates, combined with the exodus from 
densely populated urban centers to first and second ring suburbs is what's truly driven home prices higher. And perhaps there's an argument to be made that that's a temporary impact or transitory. And given what we heard from Powell at the November FOMC and this upcoming week's heavy slate of Fed speak, it's going to be very interesting to see the degree to which other monetary policymakers stick to that transitory characterization. The fact that the chair went as far as to explicitly lay out next year in Q2 or Q3 as the time frame that the committee is expecting we see some of these transitory dislocations begin to wane means that as we get closer to that point in the cycle, any earlier tone shift from either Powell or, frankly, anyone else on the committee could potentially be a signal that monetary policymakers are thinking about either A, accelerating the pace of tapering, or B, pondering maybe bringing the liftoff rate hike forward or making the first rate hike by more than 25 basis points. And to your point, Ben, the week ahead contains a lot of high-profile voting members who we expect will weigh in on the recent higher-than-expected inflation print. So at the end of the day, this will bring into question the two rate hikes that are currently priced in for 2022. And at least from our perspective, all else being equal, we'd expect the Fed to continue to reinforce the transitory narrative. This implies that investors will soon turn their focus to the December FOMC meeting where we get an update of the beloved dot plot. And in thinking about the dot plot and also what we saw immediately following CPI, we fielded a very interesting question on why the very front end of the curve did not flatten more sharply as the two-year sector underperformed, presumably as the timing of liftoff was brought forward. And really the best explanation for this is that what we're seeing on the inflation front also has implications for the terminal rate. And so while, yes, the two-year sector did underperform initially, the fact that the belly of the curve was able to keep pace with that downtrade implies that maybe the latest reads on prices mean that the Fed is going to need to ultimately bring rates to a higher level than maybe was presumed initially. So from that perspective, not only is the 2022 dot going to be in focus, but the shape of the dot plot thereafter is also going to be especially relevant simply to gauge how the Fed is envisioning the path of the hiking cycle beyond liftoff. There's also an argument to be made that the parallel shift in the twos fives curve rather than a flattening, simply implies that there is a higher probability that the Fed achieves what is assumed to be their terminal rate. Now, whether that is 175 or 250 really remains to be seen. But the fact of the matter is that the market continues to price in fairly lofty inflation expectations. One of the more interesting nuances within the break-even space that we've seen over the course of the last week has been the steady state or grind somewhat higher in 10-year break-evens as well as five-year break-evens. However, this has occurred with an important divergence. The five-year, five-year forward, however, has drifted lower. So our interpretation of this price action is that the market has a reasonable amount of faith, not only in the Fed's ability, but also willingness to address higher realized inflation at some point, and that it will ultimately keep forward inflation expectations contained. 
Ian, that's a really good point because the last time we saw 10-year break-even so significantly higher than the five-year, five-year forward measure was in the early 2000s. And frankly, it didn't persist for all that long. And as that spread normalized, what we saw was rather than five-year, five-year forwards increasing sharply to meet 10-year break-evens, it was actually a decline in outright inflation expectations that flowed through to a compression in the spread between those two measures which reinforces exactly your point, which is that given the Fed's demonstrated track record in fighting runaway inflation over the longer term, so the second part of that five-year, five-year forward, there still is faith that tighter monetary policy will be able to offset spiraling prices. Let us not forget that the market's confidence in the Fed's ability to fight inflation is part of what has been keeping longer-dated yields contained, particularly 10s and 30s. If we think about the evolution of monetary policymaking and the increase in transparency that has occurred over the last 30-plus years, global central bankers, particularly the Fed, have become incredibly transparent. And in doing so, investors have a reasonably good understanding of the Fed's reaction function to higher inflation. What made this particular cycle so unique was the Fed's shift in the framework. Recall that in 2020, the Fed introduced this average inflation targeting notion as well as maximum versus full employment, all of which implied that the Fed wouldn't respond to inflation in the same way that they had in the past. What we have seen in 2021 is that investors, to a large extent, have lost faith in the Fed's commitment to the new framework. Now, I'll argue that that's not necessarily fair, simply because the magnitude of the upside surprises on the inflation front has put Powell in a very difficult situation. Even if the Fed did want to allow inflation to run hotter than it has in prior cycles, the U.S. economy is simply faced with too much inflation at the moment for the Fed to stand idly by. And this brings us to what were the other meaningful events of this past week, namely the tailed 10-year refunding and very weak 30-year refunding that showed its largest tail since August 2011. But on 30s, given the fact that the auction was coming right after that upside surprise in CPI and that in outright terms, rates are still fairly significantly off the local peaks, to me, the auction results suggested more of a reluctance to catch the proverbial knife than any real broader rethink of the appropriate level of long-end yields at this stage. The fact that immediately following the auction itself, we saw long-end yields drift lower, I think reinforces that idea somewhat. And if anything, given these refundings were the first set of smaller auctions following last week's refunding announcement, the fact that smaller auctions resulted in larger tails really once again gets at the fact that given Treasury's unique position in financial markets, it's much less of a supply-demand flow-driven dynamic than it is about the macro fundamentals, such as CPI. On the topic of refunding auction performance, a question that we received recently from a client was, why do foreign market participants tend to take a larger share of refunding auctions as opposed to reopenings? In addition to the new and shiny bond argument, there's also a component of the variety of investment that, say, large foreign official accounts 
participate in in the treasury market. And what I mean by that is that given some large foreign holders of treasuries have meaningful exposure to the long end of the curve that needs to be adjusted, but likely broadly maintained, the fact that a lot of those holdings mature in refunding months means that this investor class has a greater reinvestment need in refunding months than reopening months. So rather than wait to allocate that cash over refundings and then the subsequent two reopenings, clearly there's a preference to simply bid a bit more aggressively at refundings and align those positional needs until the next quarter. And that also resonates when one thinks about the objective of reserve managers, and that is to have access to liquidity. The the on-the-run is going to be the most liquid bond in any particular sector, and so paying a bit of a premium for the liquidity certainly does resonate. And speaking of on-the-run, what was your uh, marathon time, Ian? You know, Ben, it was exactly what it was last year. And the year before that. And probably next year. In the week ahead, the Treasury market will continue to digest the implications from the stronger-than-expected October inflation print. We have the October retail sales figures on Tuesday. The consensus is currently for a four-tenths of a percent increase in retail sales. Now, we're reminded that this is not an inflation-adjusted series, and so when we put it in the context of the six-tenths of a percent increase in headline CPI, we start to get increasingly concerned about real growth and the implications for the forward path of the real economy. Now, the recent increases in wages, particularly for some of the low-wage earners, have contributed to expectations for inflation over the course of the next year to become self-perpetuating. We're cautious against assuming that this is a given at this point in the cycle. If for no other reason, then real spending capacity continues to be undermined by higher prices. So yes, inflation will be self-perpetuating to some extent, but eventually demand will be undermined. When we think about the potential response by policymakers, we're reminded that central bankers do not have the best track record of engineering soft landings. And in effect, that's precisely what the Fed will need to do to keep the real economy from slipping into a recession. Specifically, monetary policymakers will need to thread the proverbial needle of tightening monetary policy enough to contain prices and forward price expectations on consumer goods and services while remaining stimulative enough to keep the recovery on track. It goes without saying that this is an unenviable position for Powell and company to be in at the moment, especially with the lingering uncertainties regarding who will get nominated to be chair of the FOMC in 2022. Our baseline assumption remains that there's a 75 to 80 percent probability that Powell gets the official nod and the second most likely candidate will be Brainerd. Some of the recent price action confirms the notion that Brainerd would be interpreted as a more dovish outcome for the FOMC. We saw that recently following reports that the White House had interviewed Brainerd for the potential chair role. We find ourselves very sympathetic to the idea that any sitting president would want the easiest monetary policy possible given the implications for the employment market and the potential for re-election or legacy, if nothing else. That said, the upward pressure on consumer prices has complicated the calculus for Biden and the administration 
insofar as being seen as turning a blind eye to higher living costs has political implications going forward as well. It's within that context that we'll be looking at this week's supply events, namely the $32 billion 20-year on Wednesday and the $14 billion tips reopening. Given how 10-year real yields just hit a record low of negative 1.25%, we struggle to imagine that demand won't be high for the inflation-protected securities in the 10-year sector. All else being equal, we'll be watching the auction takedown for further evidence of apprehension around the inflationary situation going forward. We've reached the point in this week's episode where we'd like to offer our sincere thanks and condolences to anyone who has managed to make it this far. And as the holidays offer a time for reflection and to refocus on what's truly important, we're reminded of old man Lingen's sage wisdom, the key to happiness is lowering expectations and forecasts. Thanks for listening to Macro Horizons. Please visit us at bmocm.com backslash macrohorizons. As we aspire to keep our strategy effort as interactive as possible, we'd love to hear what you thought of today's episode. So please email me directly with any feedback at ian.lingen at bmo.com. You can listen to this show and subscribe on Apple Podcasts or your favorite podcast provider. This show and resources are supported by our team here at BMO, including the FIC Macro Strategy Group and BMO's marketing team. This show has been produced and edited by Puddle Creative. This podcast has been prepared with the assistance of employees of Bank of Montreal, BMO Nesbitt Burns Incorporated, and BMO Capital Markets Corporation. Together, BMO, who are involved in fixed income and foreign exchange sales and marketing efforts. Accordingly, it should be considered to be a product of the fixed income and foreign exchange businesses generally, and not a research report that reflects the views of disinterested research analysts. Notwithstanding the foregoing, this podcast should not be construed as an offer or the solicitation of an offer to sell or to buy or subscribe for any particular product or services, including, without limitation, any commodities, securities, or other financial instruments. We are not soliciting any specific action based on this podcast. It is for the general information of our clients. It does not constitute a recommendation or a suggestion that any investment or strategy referenced herein may be suitable for you. It does not take into account the particular investment objectives, financial conditions, or needs of individual clients. Nothing in this podcast constitutes investment, legal, accounting, or tax advice, or a representation that any investment or strategy is suitable or appropriate to your unique circumstances, or otherwise constitutes an opinion or a recommendation to you. BMO is not providing advice regarding the value or advisability of trading in commodity interests, including futures contracts and commodity options, or any other activity which would cause BMO or any of its affiliates to be considered a commodity trading advisor under the U.S. Commodity Exchange Act. BMO is not undertaking to act as a swap advisor to you or in your best interest in you, to the extent applicable, will rely solely on advice from your qualified independent representative in making hedging or trading decisions. This podcast is not to be relied upon in substitution for the exercise of independent judgment. You should conduct your own independent analysis of the matters referred to herein, together with your qualified independent representative, if applicable. BMO assumes no responsibility for verification of the information in this podcast. No representation or warranty is made as to the accuracy or completeness of such information, and BMO accepts no liability whatsoever for any loss arising from any use of or reliance on this podcast. BMO assumes no obligation to correct or update this podcast. This podcast does not contain all information that may be required to evaluate any transaction or matter, and information may be available to BMO and or its affiliates that is not reflected herein. BMO and its affiliates may have positions, long or short, and affect transactions or make markets in securities mentioned herein, or provide advice or loans to, or participate in the underwriting or restructuring of the obligations of issuers and companies mentioned herein. 
Moreover, BMO's trading desks may have acted on the basis of the information in this podcast. For further information, please go to bmocm.com slash macrohorizons slash legal.